Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 16, Sebastian Major. The Amazons, the Queen of the Occult, Napoleon, the Sword of Destiny, just a few of the subjects covered and debunked by my guest this episode. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. I'm podcasting to you today from the traditional territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, sometimes called Ottawa. For this special episode, I'm joined by another podcaster, one of my favorites, Sebastian Major of Our Fake History. It was one of the first podcasts I started listening to a number of years ago, and it's one I enjoyed from the first time I downloaded an episode. I especially liked the episodes about Blackbeard the Pirate, Richard the Lionhearted, Who Invented Rock and Roll, the series on Heinrich Schliemann, the man who supposedly discovered ancient Troy, the series on Atlantis, so many more. What I think, though, that sealed the deal for me, that Our Fake History is a podcast everyone should listen to, was his series on faking the moon landings. If you're into debunking conspiracy theories, or if you believe any conspiracy theories, this is one you cannot miss. Sebastian Major is a former history teacher in the Ontario public education system. He turned his knowledge and passion for history into Our Fake History, the podcast, and he's now a full-time podcaster. So, what's the connection to the Eastern Front of World War II? Well, there are two. First, Our Fake History has a series about the life of Joseph Stalin, which I found very informative. There's also a thematic connection between Our Fake History and Beyond Barbarossa. One of the primary goals of this podcast, in fact, the idea that led me to create this podcast was the general lack of knowledge in North America and in Western cultures about the Eastern Front of World War II. There are a number of misunderstandings about the Eastern Front. There are a lot of ideas about it that are just plain wrong. Historical myths, if you will. Shining the light of knowledge on them, replacing these myths with facts, is the goal of this podcast, Beyond Barbarossa. And that dovetails very nicely with Sebastian's podcast. So, uh, good afternoon, listeners. I'm here with a very special episode. I've got um, joining me, uh, Mr. Sebastian Major, the man behind the, uh, the leading podcast, Our Fake History. It was one of the inspirations for this podcast, Beyond Barbarossa, uh, which is, yes, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on just the Eastern Front of World War II. Um, and so, Sebastian, it was your series on Joseph Stalin, I think it was in season three, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, 
eventually sent me on a quest which led us to this moment here. Um, it was uh, that led me to Kristaps um, Andersen's uh, podcast, The Eastern Border, which mm -hmm. then led me to some other historical podcasts. And eventually I got the idea, hey, uh, I don't find any other podcasts in English that focus exclusively on the Eastern Front. So that's eventually brought me here. So uh, before we go any further, uh, please, uh, would you tell the listeners about our fake history? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Scott, and thanks for that really uh, kind introduction. Um, Our Fake History is a podcast about historical myths. So the whole premise of the show is I look at stories that have been wrapped up into the historical record, which may or may not be true. Sometimes they're the kind of legends that everyone just assumes are purely legendary, like, you know, the... Uh, the, the stories about Robin Hood or right. uh, the tales of King Arthur. And then I'll kind of the Amazons. Right. Exactly. Yeah. A recent episode or series just, I just did, it was on the Amazons, right? Something we all just assume to be mythology. And then I look at, you know, what the best research is telling us about whether or not there's a kernel of historical truth to those stories. Then I also look at stories that people often pass on, like they're just, you know, pure historical facts that are actually myths that have been or just sort of fanciful bits of storytelling that have kind of gotten wrapped up in our understanding of history so the one i always use as an example um is uh, about napoleon a, a lot of people think that there's uh there's no nose on the sphinx because napoleon aimed his cannons at it and shot the nose off and that right. just gets passed on just like that's a fact that's why it has no nose yeah completely untrue right so those are the kinds of things i explore in my show um you know sometimes it's fun little stuff about you know the history of food uh, and sometimes it's more uh deep things so right now i'm doing a whole series on uh galileo and uh his conflict with the church which kind of brings you into this you know wider conversation about science and religion right. so uh that's what we're doing on our fake history yeah great and i encourage everyone who's interested in history uh, to check that one out. Now, as I said, uh, one of the things that led me to that, uh, to, to doing this podcast was the series on Joseph Stalin. And I think you did three episodes on him, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so given the purpose of our fake history to blow up those myths, um, what drew you to Stalin? There were a number of things. So Stalin is, I think, one of the most mysterious figures of the 20th century, or maybe I should rephrase that. He, because he is such an important and consequential figure, it's kind of amazing how little understood he is. Mm -hmm. um, and that has to do with historical myth-making. So he is someone that really tried to create his own version of history, uh, not only of his own biography, but the history of the Russian Revolution, the history of the Soviet Union, at least while he was alive. I mean, he was a guy that quite literally airbrushed people out of pictures right. uh, to sort of better suit his version of the past. So he very much constructed his own fake history. But he is also someone who was at the mercy of uh, his enemies when it came to the other side of the uh, how his story was told. So, you know, one of the most famous biographies of 
uh, Stalin was written by Trotsky, right? right? By one of his sort of great um, rivals within the Bolshevik party. Uh, and then a lot of other biographies written about um, Stalin before the fall of the Soviet Union, especially before the 1990s, were especially those in the West, were written by um, people coming from a perspective where Stalin was just like the worst example of a communist monster. They were often written from the perspective of people who saw communism as uh, bad just by by definition and so right. um they they immediately sort of started from from that foot so right. it, it makes him incredibly difficult to sometimes get a a sense of he he tried to airbrush quite literally his own image uh in history and then also his enemies created a, a version where he was a, a total monster right um not that he doesn't necessarily deserve some of that reputation right well um, it's so polarizing isn't it and this is yeah. fascinating because it's so extreme right the yeah. the uh the side that or the story the narrative that he tried to create he's the great hero who saved the soviet union who saved the working class yeah at the same time you've got the other side which is so extreme he's the worst monster the greatest mass murderer in history yeah um, and you know there's there's not much in between, is there? No. And when I was doing my own series on him, what I found difficult is that it's not necessarily like finding some sort of middle spot, because at a certain point, Stalin's body count kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, when you really start looking at, you know, the really good research, especially the stuff that's been done uh, about the, um, uh, the, the the famine, the man-made famines. Uh, especially in Ukraine, but also yeah. in other parts of the Soviet empire at the time. Uh, you know, when you read those stories, it's hard not to come away from that and go, my God, this truly was a, a, a truly terrible person uh, on the world stage. Yeah. But, but that doesn't help us understand him as a human being. He, he was responsible for that, and we should not in any way exonerate Stalin for his crimes, but also we, it's hard to get a sense of him as a person, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it kind of can take away our, our, our deeper understanding of humanity uh, when, we, when we kind of just see him as a monster. Right. Yeah. If you look at those old pictures uh, of him when he was younger, you, I mean, my first impression was, wow, here's a lady killer for you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, hot Stalin, right? There's yeah. that, and I know that's made its its rounds online, right? There's that one mugshot of him when he's like 22 or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very suave. Yes. So, when you were doing your research into into Stalin for the series, what was the the biggest or the most significant historical myth that you found about our dear Soso? Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about that and. I went back through all of my notes to sort of see what I sort of identified in the, in the show as sort of the most significant myth. And what I found was that there's a, there isn't so much like here is this like one legendary story that's totally untrue. Mm -hmm. It's more people trying to psychoanalyze Stalin. So there was a trend in history writing, especially sort of in the mid 20th century in the West that um, had people trying to find some sort of like childhood trauma that explained mm -hmm. 
why Stalin was such a terrible person or was right. such a ruthless leader. Maybe that's a better way right. to put it. Yeah, um, I've, I heard uh, there was a podcast a while back. Uh, somebody wrote a book about five terrible leaders. So there was Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and uh, Kim, the first Kim in, in, um, mm -hmm. in North Korea. And oh, they all had, you know, fathers who were mean to them or absent fathers yeah. and mothers who doted on them. But that seems pretty simplistic. I, I, that's what I found. Right. And when you actually kind of get into, um, you know, the best research on Stalin, you found that like, yeah, his dad was like, you know, he beat him. But like that was true of like all of his peers that yeah. their fathers beat them. Right. Yeah. And again, this is not to, you know, downplay the trauma that can come from um you know being physically abused as a child but it 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 doesn't explain stalin right because his next door neighbor did not become stalin you know what i mean that's right yeah um and and you know and they're like sometimes you'll read that like oh he had this terrible um uh relationship with his mother as well but that's also not true right we know mm. from letters that he actually had a, a fairly warm relationship yeah. um with his mother and so sometimes people will look to later in life. So there's one point, you know, he, he gets married, his first wife, who's often sort of presented as the love of his life. She ends up dying young. Right. And Stalin, there is this one story about Stalin, like standing over her grave, saying that he will never love again. And sometimes that is used almost as a narrative device yeah. in the stolen biographies to be like, and then he turned evil. Like this is the <laughs> villain origin story right. for Stalin. Like his one true love dies. And that's how we get the man-made famine, you know, yeah. or the purges of the 1930s or, you know, the, maybe the ruthless way in which he conducted himself during the second world war. Right. 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 Uh, yeah. And, and again, I, I think that's so simplistic and not really, not really the case. And uh, yeah, that's I think better that's... to a, a Marvel movie, right? The, the green goblin looks in the mirror and, Oh yeah, I'm the green goblin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, that needs to be resisted. And then, you know, there's even more fanciful stuff that's really easy to disprove that he was somehow physically deformed. Right. Right. So like he had webbed toes. Um, now, it is true that he uh, as a child, he got hit by a wagon. Right. Um, he got run yeah. over by a, a horse brown wagon or something. Yeah. And, and so, it, so he always had a problem with his left arm. Is that right? Yeah, he did. That is true. And so like that's again, that is not inaccurate. But then people will often pair that with like and that must mean that he had some sort of sexual dysfunction. And, and you know, he had all these other sort of odd things about him that you know this is again villain origin story stuff right. right he was mad because he had some sort of a disability um and again this is i think just nonsense and takes us away from actually the thing that's maybe even more chilling about stalin is that he was kind of like a normal guy who mm -hmm. was just okay with millions of people dying right you know yes yeah the banality of evil he's just yeah He's a regular guy, but he's somehow ruthless enough uh, to not care. Uh, and in fact, yeah, quite willing to deal to cause deaths. So as long as he's the guy on top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. But now, is there one story that is, you know, obviously fake or not, maybe not obviously, but you found is not true. 
but is so widely perceived or believed here in the West? Um, yeah. So I, I, again, I was going back through my notes and sort of trying to, um, trying to sort of put my finger on, uh, on that. And what, again, it's not like there's just sort of like one sort of like, here's a nice clear story, or at least in the stuff that, uh, that, that I was sort of getting into, but you know, if, if you read Stalin's account of the Russian revolution, the whole thing was his idea. Yes. Right. And so like, he oh, was lending, like, it was around. Yeah. 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 But he was like right by his side the whole time yeah. and was like, and on that, like in during the October revolution, when, uh, when the Bolsheviks were able to seize power, it's like, he's right in the mix. He's doing everything. He's directing soldiers. Like he's making it all happen. And so that's a version of it that was, you know, he was putting forward. And then if you get Trotsky's account, he's like, Stalin did nothing. Yeah. Stalin was a total middleman, nothing. And the one thing I think maybe Trotsky does get right is that Trotsky's like, Stalin is the most boring man I've ever met. You know? Uh, well, okay, the most boring bank robber he's ever met. Yeah, the most boring bank robber. That's a good point. Yeah, let's not forget about that. Right. Um, but you know, he's he's like Stalin, he called Stalin a quote gray blur. Because mm. he just found him so like again, you talk about the banality of evil. He found him to be so banal. Yeah. And and actually, and you know, studying Stalin's rise to power, the way that he did it, especially in the 1920s, before he gets into like the purges of the 30s, was often through uh bureaucratic strategy strategy. Yeah. Right? Organizing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like using his very specific position within the Communist Party to sort of stack the ranks with loyalists, yeah. carefully make some jobs less important than his job, and slowly but surely organize the party apparatus so he was the indispensable man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very dry, right? He yeah. goes about it like a bureaucrat until the 30s when he starts killing people, setting up yeah. these kangaroo courts, the purges, and the rest. But also, even later through the 30s and into the war, um, that's kind of reflected, I found, in the way that uh, you know, the first response is to organize a committee. The, the Nazis are invading. Right. <laughs> okay, we're going to organize a committee and then organize another committee within the committee. Yeah. And there, you know, there's Stavkai and then there's the, the, the um, it's sort of the equivalent of the defense department and Stalin's actually at the top of all these different committees, but they all have slightly different and overlapping jobs. Right. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, reflects that whole organizing the party, uh, getting yourself into a key position and making sure you're the guy in control of all of them. Yeah. Yeah, no, very, very much so. And see, this is what I think makes him different from, you know, a lot of the people that he's compared to, especially the fascist leaders, right? People like, you know, Hitler or Mussolini. Um, obviously, they had their own state bureaucracies that mm -hmm. were, you know, uh, famously brutal in their own way. But, um, you know, those guys were not necessarily interested in bureaucracy. They're like, it's all about strong leader, cuts right through the top. What I say goes... And like, I, I'm not interested in your particular bureaucratic title. Stalin was very interested in your particular bureaucratic title. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that, yeah, I think that is surprising. It, it really, um, 
it it doesn't fit in with the narrative and the you know the myth of Stalin that yeah. we tend to carry around here. Yeah. yeah. To broaden that idea out a little bit, uh, not just on Stalin, but do you think that uh, people here in the West, most people, I mean, there are experts uh, in various fields, obviously, but generally speaking, do we have a, a good understanding of the uh, history of uh, the Soviet Union or and more specifically of the Eastern Front in the Second World War? We do not. We definitely do not. And that's why I think it's really great what you're doing with your podcast, because um, the Eastern Front is uh, it's isn't really taught uh, at the high school level, uh, which is where most people sort of learn their history. Right. Um, and that's partially, you know, we're both Canadians. And so, you know, the Canadian uh, contingent or the Canadian experience in World War Two um, wasn't on the Eastern Front. And so. Mm. We don't get taught that, but I'm sure that experience is also true for Americans, right? I'm sure Americans probably have a similar type of uh, history education where I'm sure they learn about America's contribute uh, contributions to World War II. And they yeah. learn about, you know, D-Day and the Western Front and the Pearl war in Harbor. the Pacific. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I think anyone who's a real history buff that studied World War II seriously knows that the war truly was won and lost on the Eastern Front. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know, I, I know I said that with quite a bit of certainty just then. I was like, oh, there's also the Pacific Wars and I immediately want to backpedal that. But <laughs> <laughs> but but I think, you know, the war in Europe, I, I, I will say with some level of confidence based on my own reading, truly was won and lost um, on the Eastern Front. And it's a shame that many of us um, in the West don't really appreciate that or really know much about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. Um, I didn't until I started reading history a number of years ago. Um, you know, you know, the the broad strokes of it. But again, going back to my own high school experience, we're taught that, uh, you know, it was a, a launch, uh, sorry, a sneak attack. Uh, the Soviets were unprepared. The Germans advanced and advanced and advanced. And then winter stopped them. And yes. that's what ended it. It was all general winter. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it, yeah, it's just like Napoleon, uh, <laughs> the sequel, right? Yeah. 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 No, but I've been, mean, but of course, right. And I'm, I'm sure you're kind of going through it beat by beat on your show, but you know, the, the ferocity of those battles on the Eastern front kind of dwarf anything that happened on the Western front of the war. Yeah. It's the ferocity and the scale, the sheer yeah. size of it. It's just, that's what really uh, when I started reading about it, that's just what really blew me away about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think this sort of uh, yeah, misunderstanding or misapprehension uh, of, uh, of that side of it continues. And I don't, um, and I think that it's also plays out today in what we see happening in with Russia and Ukraine. Mm. Now, it's understandably, that's the big topic. That's the lead in all the news stories is what's going on in Ukraine in 2022. Um, I've kind of noticed some parallels, but I want to ask you uh, without setting it up any further. Sure. What parallels, if any, do you see between what happened 80 years ago on the Eastern Front in, of World War II and what's going on today? Well, I mean... If anything, the Russians are playing the role of 
the Germans in, mm. in, in the most recent conflict. And again, I am no geopolitical expert. This is just based on, you know, me reading the news. Right. Right. Uh, and being a, a lover of history. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's this massive massing of troops, uh, and they sort of swarm in trying to take the capital, thinking they are going to easily knock over a capital, right? Like, isn't there that famous, you know, is it Hitler or one of the other top ranking Nazis who said like, all we need to do is kick the door in and the whole right. thing will fall apart. Right. Yeah. It yeah. may have been Hitler who said that, right? I think it was Hitler who said that. Just kick yeah. in the door and the whole house will collapse. Right, right, exactly. And, and you almost feel like that's how Putin perceived Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, that all they need to do is kick in the door and that's it. And of course, you know, the Ukrainians have proved them wrong uh, deeply and profoundly, not unlike how, um, you know, the, the Russians certainly proved the Nazis wrong um, back in World War II. But I saw something from uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Christoph Andresen, who's a, a Latvian podcaster, does a podcast called The Eastern Border. Uh, I saw him put something out that, you know, people want to draw a lot of parallels between uh, World War II and what's happening in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And actually, Putin himself kind of wants to draw those parallels. Right. Yes. Like, you know, uh, you know, that we will we will be triumphant in uh, in this conflict the way that, you know, uh, the Soviet Union was triumphant in in the Second World War, right. but he pointed he out defend that this, against Nazis. It, well, yeah, of course, right? Uh, yes, right. Yeah, I, I've I've kind of forgotten about that completely bananas uh, little <laughs> justification that they have there. Um, but uh, he pointed out that it actually there, there's a better parallel between what happened in World War One to mm. Russia uh, and this current conflict. Right. That where, you know, your leadership who is kind of out of touch with what their military is actually capable of feels like they can sort of overplay their hand on the global stage uh, mm. and push themselves into a conflict that turns into a quagmire that right. they can't get into and they can't get out of, I should say. And uh, and then that over time steadily. Uh, erodes the stability of the state uh, and uh, not that I think that we're necessarily heading towards like another Russian revolution um, but mm. I found that parallel to be uh, really interesting and and one I've been thinking about yeah. a lot yeah that, that's a good point yeah uh, and of course there are so many differences but um, uh, one of the things that I've sort of struck by myself is is terms of parallels is that in both instances, the aggressor has a strategy based on partially uh, false information or assumptions, but sticks to it and right. keeps doing the same thing. Right. And it didn't work the first time. So we're going to do it some more. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That is a really good point. I think you're, you're onto something there. Yeah. Now you, are, are you, let me ask you this, you recently moved um, cities, and so you uh, were a history teacher. Are you still a history teacher? Um, I am currently a full-time podcaster. Okay, awesome. So Congratulations. I'm, yeah, no, the, the part of making the move meant that I had to uh, leave my, my longtime teaching job, and the reason we were able to do that is because uh, the podcast was now able to be my full-time job. Uh, which is 
just, you know, kind of a dream come true. But yeah. with that said, I am still, uh, I have my name in the hat to uh, uh, be a, um, a supply teacher here in my, wow. my new hometown of Ottawa. Uh, and so, uh, but you know, the, the process is slow. And so I'm still yes. waiting to, still waiting to hear, but that's really just to kind of keep my, my toe in the water of, um, of education. I always, you know, I really kind of see myself as a teacher and, um, you know, I, I actually sort of see what I do on the podcast is just a form of history education, right? Sure. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but technically no, I'm, I'm not working in a high school right now teaching a history course. Okay. Well, uh, you know, you still want to keep your toe in that world. So how about this? If I were to make you the czar of history education in Canada, (laughs) what would you change about the way we teach the history of the second world war? Oh, that's yeah. Okay. Well, here's one thing I will say is that one thing you do learn quite a lot about currently as a history student in Canada is world war two. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, mm. it is a big part of the grade 10 history curriculum. Yep. Um, I remember that. Yeah. And it still is, uh, the one year you, well, okay. Let me break down for those of you who are curious about, you know, how Canadian history education works, at least in Ontario, it does differ from province to province. But in Ontario, um, you start really uh, looking at history proper in grade seven. Uh, There's like social science sort of history ish Mm. stuff that you are doing before then. But you have a proper history course in grades seven and in grade eight. Um, In those years, you tend to be doing sort of Canada's our early colonial history. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some history of Canada's first people and then um, the sort of early colonial era. So uh, New France and then the sort of British colonies in Canada. And then uh, you don't have to take history in grade nine. And then grade 10 is 20th century Canadian history, right. which overwhelmingly ends up being about World War One and World War Two. Mm. So it's kind of like right now, if, if you don't learn anything else about history, you just kind of know a bit about World War II right. is sort of what happens. Now, I really wish, again, this is because I think history is so important. I wish you had to take history every year in high school. Mm. Um, and I know there's people who are, you know, the, the STEM folks out there that are like, isn't that a bit much? But uh, I, I truly believe that uh, a, a strong understanding of history um, makes you a better citizen mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and also makes you a more critical thinker um, and makes you a better part of a democracy. And I know that sounds like so, uh, God, pretentious maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I believe it. I just believe it. And I really wish we had more, uh, we had more history education in general. Now, if we had more history education, then that meant that, you know, something like World War Two, we could devote an entire course to it. Right. Uh, and then and then we could just give so much more um, complexity to uh, to what it is, because here's I think we are getting better at, in at the high school level of um, adding nuance to how we teach our history. Uh, and it's an ongoing process, but we're, we're slowly getting better. Um, mm. But I think right now we still have, we still have this sense that, you know, World War II was just like unambiguously the good war. Right. right? And, uh, 
And we're the good guys. Well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. When you're fighting against the Nazis, it's hard (laughs) not to feel like the good guys, right? Yes. Uh, but we're also allied with the communists well that's right and so and and that's and there and therein lies the nuance right Mm -hmm. and this is and this is sort of the difficulty that we're trying to sort of understand now now for a long time i know in canadian history teaching we've been learning about things like you know japanese internment in canada Mm uh and um and and sort of sort of the darker sides of you know what was happening domestically um, during that time, but there's even more complex questions uh, to be sort of asked about Canada's role in the British Empire at that time. Um, you know, Brit- Britain's role in the the world, um, and uh, and and yes, and of course, you know, the alliance with the Soviet Union, and you know mm-hmm. why that happened. You know, it, and ultimately, you know, was one of the one of the 20th century's kind of great marriages of convenience. Right. And I mean, especially from the Soviet perspective, right? Like they just, yeah. they spent like, you know, their, their first few decades of their existence railing against the great, you know, bourgeois capitalist, uh, you know, pigs of Britain the, and France the par- and their yeah, the parasites. empires. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, and then come world war two, they're all fighting together. Yeah. Um, Supplied so, by the West too. Right, right. Very much so. Very much so. So I guess, you know, uh, I'm someone that just loves nuance. I love drilling deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the only thing I would, the only way to change it right now is just for there to be more history education at the high school level. Um, you know, I think we are cutting it off too soon. The fact that in high school, you only need to take one credit in history. Yeah. Um, that's something I would immediately change. Um, and you can take more credits than that, just to be clear. Uh, you can do it as an elective. Uh, but you know, then it's only like the real heads like you and me that (laughs) keep going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it really sounds like it hasn't changed much since I was in high school. Uh, God, almost 40 years ago now. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and here we are in the 21st century. Yeah. But, okay. Um, we're almost out of time, but I'll just ask you uh, one more. Uh, where is um, uh, our fake history going next? We, we, you've got Galileo, a series going on him. What's next? Yeah. So, I mean, right now in front of me, I've got a cork board filled with ideas for where I go next. So I'll just read to you what's on my my cork board right here. So uh, I do have an upcoming show uh, that I've, I'm still sort of putting together with uh, uh, another great history podcaster, Daniele Bolelli. Uh, who oh, does, yeah, I love him. Yeah, yeah he does uh, the great show History on Fire. And mm-hmm. uh, History on Fire has now just come back from behind the paywall. It was only available through Luminary, but yeah. now it's available on all the podcast apps again. And uh, he did a really interesting show on this figure called Liver Eater Johnson. Uh, yes. who is this very famous sort of American mountain man that there's yeah. all this mythology about him. So we're going to be doing a collaboration about Liver Eater Johnson. Um, you know, what's been on my list forever that I'm finally going to get around to is the Vikings. Uh, mm. And so, but I'm trying to figure out exactly what my angle is going to be. So just, Today, I was, you know, listening to some lectures on 
um, on Viking history. I think this thing I'm actually really interested in are uh, the Viking explorations and actually the Viking history in Canada. Um, uh-huh. And so, you know, there's this these Viking settlements that we believe uh, uh, ended up in in what is today Newfoundland. Right. Uh, and uh, they spoke about this, we think, as Vinland. Um, but, you know, it's kind of very unclear because we're only getting information through uh, this type of history writing called the sagas, which right. are sort of a mix of mythology and history and poetry. Um, and so uh, I'm really interested in that, but I haven't quite uh, figured out my angle on that. I'll give you some more. I'm looking at my my corkboard. It says Mayan Collapse, ah. says uh, Hellfire Club, says uh, Fourth Crusade is up there. Uh, oh, the discovery of Australia is, is up there. Um, uh, oh, the Comte de Saint Germain. I don't know if you know that guy. The yeah. Comte de Saint Germain. Yeah, the uh, man who claimed to be an immortal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can anyway, just. The list goes on and on. Uh, have you read Foucault's Pendulum? I, I have not. I have not. Uh, oh. Umberto, Umberto Echo comes up a lot on the show, so yeah. I, I'll, I'm not going to lie to you. I've actually quoted from Foucault's Pendulum before. Yes, I remember reading the uh, the one on the, uh, the the Knights Templar on the Knights Templar, right? So I've I have read passages of Foucault's Pendulum, but I've never made it through the entire book. To be completely oh. honest with you, I can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, you love it. I eh? see. So that's yeah. the thing with, um, it seems like with echo people like love it, love it. Or they just go like, Oh my God, it's too much. It's too dense. Yeah. 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 I can't get my sons to read it. So. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll check it. Actually. I just did a, uh, a podcast. I was just on another podcast mm-hmm. where we were talking about the movie uh, in the name of the Rose. Yes. Uh, which is based on a, another uh, echo, echo novel. Yeah, and apparently the original novel has just like huge passages that are just in Latin, so yes. you can't even can't even <laughs> read it unless you read Latin. Got to know Latin, and it's yes. got diagrams, which is really unusual for a for a novel. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, it's great. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to say thank you very much, Sebastian. I know you've got a very busy schedule, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me and the listeners to Beyond Barbarossa. And um, I hope to wish you all the best. And I'm going to keep listening to uh, regularly to Our Fake History. It's one of my favorite go-to podcasts. It's always up there, uh, comes up on my on my feed all the time. And um, I always hit the play button as soon as I can. Thanks so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks for feeling, making me feel very welcome here on uh, Beyond Barbarossa. Okay. Take care of that. I'll, see, I'll let you go. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye. So once again, thanks to Sebastian Major of Our Fake History for his generous time and insight. You can find, and I highly recommend that you follow Our Fake History on any of your favorite podcasting apps. His website is ourfakehistory.com. Check it out for more detailed descriptions and a comprehensive list of episodes, plus some other cool stuff. Now, if you're a regular listener, uh, and I really hope that you are, uh, it's now mid to late December, and I'm going to be taking a little bit of time off over the holidays. So the next episode will be live on January 9th, 2023. Please join me for that one when I'll be taking a look at what it was like 
for people in occupied territories uh, under the Germans. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca. And yes, you can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner right under the logo. You'll see it right there. Thanks also to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. As I said, your financial support goes toward better audio equipment, more research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. That's so important in these winter months. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. I'd also really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or whichever app that you listen to it on. Doing this doesn't help hurt, it doesn't cost you anything, but it really helps spread the word to other podcast uh, aficionados. If you find I've made any errors, or if you have any questions or comments, or just want to say something, please do so. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next year, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>